I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, hello, are you receiving me? Hello, Roger, Roger, is that what they say? <laughs> yeah, and Wilco as well. Wilco. Wilco operate. Wilco. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we're sort of, you know, maybe this is like the BBC home service of the 1940s. <laughs> We're in a long-distance relationship this week. We are. Long-distance relationships don't generally go well. Well, let, let's see. I mean, I got a marriage out of one, so you know, I've I've got evidence to the contrary. So I'm hoping this will go well. I'm sitting in Salford. Right. That's because you're a star of three different radio stations on the BBC. Yeah. <laughs> Two five and this week six. Yeah, you describe me as the Swiss Army knife of deputy DJs. Yeah, and also I think, you know, if they're looking for the golden oldies on Radio 1, you could maybe sort of <laughs> spin a few discs. I'm hugely available. Yeah, I've always found that. I felt a bit like Alan Partridge this week, you know, living in a hotel and uh, stocking up on the breakfast buffet with my big plate <laughs> every day. But I see you as a sort of quasi-partridge figure. Where are you? Do you want to describe your location? I'm in my front room, sitting around the dining table with Emma being told what to do. And how come you chose the front room rather than one of your two kitchens? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) such a sort of easy joke. Open goal. It was such Such an open goal. goal. I I could see it trundling over the hill, that joke. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm missing you, despite your wit i'm missing you too it's it's a lonely ed- existence in the travel tavern i feel a bit like a, a traveling salesman are you in touch but with your wife are. and jean yeah we've done a bit of facetiming but he you know he talks to me for a minute and then he just goes bye 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 yeah. he, d- he doesn't have the attention span for it really mm. you're going to be back from salford soon aren't you 
Yeah, we'll be reunited for next week's podcast. This week, we are talking about the media, which is something obviously you know lots about. What has happened to our media? What is happening to our media? And what we should do about it? And I'm delighted we've got Alan Rusbridger, ex-editor of The Guardian, who has written a book called Breaking News about his time as editor of The Guardian. We've got Emily Bell, who runs a Centre for Journalism Thinking in the United States, and two other guests who've got some solutions. It's, it's action-packed. Yeah, and because it's action-packed, uh, that's what we're doing this week. There's lots to chew on, so so no comedian on this week's episode. Um, we should talk about our reasons to be cheerful. What's, what's yours this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful is media-related. It is the return of Serial, which I only just sort of accidentally discovered. If I'm honest, I was sort of browsing the iTunes chart and getting frustrated, and then I thought, what's Serial doing so high up? It always is high up. But then I realised it was Series 3. So uh, I listened to Series 3, and Series 3 of Serial, some people will, remember, will be familiar with Series 1 and Series 2. It's done by someone called Sarah Koenig from This American Life. Uh, the first one was about a potential miscarriage of justice about a guy called Adnan Saeed, um, who was accused of a murder in 19... and indeed convicted of a murder in 1999. The second was about Bo Bergdahl and the question of his desertion from the US Army. And the third is seems slightly different the tagline for it is the story of a courthouse week by week so basically she spent a year i mean this is real journalism she spent a year in a courthouse in cleveland ohio to report on the criminal justice system week by week and she's going to go into a you know a different case each week Uh And, and does it work so far half an hour in so far but i mean serial is the sort of is the kind of godmother of of all of us isn't it yeah, very much so. You really sort of gave podcasting a shot in the arm. Exactly. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is just a quick one, and it's the reasons to be cheerful listeners. So I've been popping up on these different BBC stations recently, and this week I've been on BBC Radio 6 Music from 5 till 7 in the morning. You've been brilliant. It, thank you. Well, you, t- you tuned in, I take uh, it. Every hour, every minute, yeah. Set, setting your alarm for 5 yeah, every morning, yeah. yeah. But I think this is the one that has had the biggest crossover with the people who listen listen to the podcast because i've been getting so many messages from people saying oh it's you from reasons to be cheerful so i just wanted to thank our listeners for tuning into that too maybe they've been saying where's ed (laughs) (laughs) i I don't recall seeing any messages that said that no it's funny because george ezra didn't say that to me where's jeff (laughs) reasons to be cheerful a podcast about ideas with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd well, I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian, who's written what I think is a brilliant and riveting book, Breaking News, the remaking of journalism and why it matters now. And he's in my house in London. Hello. Hello. And also Emily Bell, who is the founding director of the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism at Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism and former head of digital at The Guardian. Emily, thank you for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. So, Let's start, Alan, with you. And full disclosure, I talked to you a bit in advance of this book and and thought it was very, very important. But but tell us why you decided to write it. Well, the, the last 20 years, 25 years of media have been the most amazing whirlwind revolution. We kind of know that. And there are people like Emily and many academics who have written about this from many dimensions. But it struck me that no one had actually sat down and written a narrative of what it felt like. And like all revolutions, it felt mostly chaotic and quite frightening and often exhilarating. But it seemed to me quite important just to describe it 
and then try and work out where we go from here. And, and when you first became editor, which I believe was 1995, technology was sort of, you know, two people and a dog and probably not a dog. Uh, that's almost exactly what it was. Um, and I had been to the United States a couple of years earlier to see the internet because we couldn't get the internet from, from the office. Uh, it was rumored to exist. Um, and I came back to a newspaper that, when I began to edit, was basically using methods that differed little from how the founders of the Manchester Guardian would hot, have thought Hot it. metal. Hot metal, lorries running through the night, 10-year-old boys being poked out of beds to uh, shove papers through letterboxes. Um, there was a, a, a romance to it, and I think anyone over the age of 45 is nostalgic for those days, but it was all exploded. And and Emily, it's great that you're with us because you feature a, sort of a remarkable amount in this book because you were head of digital and at various moments in the book it is peppered with Emily's mad pronouncements. Now, I've got to say, to be fair to you, Emily's mad pronouncements always turned out to be true. So you sort of anticipated that digital was going to be transformative. You anticipated Web 2.0. You said this thing called Twitter is going to revolutionise news and basically nobody believed you. Well, when you say nobody believed me, I think you mean Alan probably. Right. In that case. <laughs> I, haven't, I, I haven't actually, I, I haven't read the book because it's been withheld from um, audiences in, in the States. So I'm flattered, flattered to hear that my man pronouncements made it in there. There were lots of things I was not at all right about. But I mean... I wish it was some kind of visionary power. Unfortunately, it was just years spent re really reporting on um, the convergence of technology with media, media businesses, which is what I covered actually as a business reporter. It's interesting, I think, that sort of as Alan says, you know, kind of there was very little sort of sense in news rooms that this was going to be as revolutionary as it was but but once you understood the principle that everything which is new for journalism is old for computer science and then you start hanging out with a lot of computer scientists this is not really sort of visionary stuff it's more a kind of an inevitable evolution and i think sometimes in in the press the only problem was that we we probably got the pace wrong and also you you are envisaging a future for yourselves which is much less good in some ways than the past which makes it much harder to get people to follow the idea that they have to change in a particular way alan i've heard you talk about when you went on your fact finding mission to America to find out about the, the internet in those early days, there was this idea that the internet would never be used for news. Why, why did they think that? Well, that, that was the New York Times. We, did, we went to four cities in four days. And when we got to the New York Times, they had a, an outfit that was doing culture and listings. And the guy who was in charge of it then, oh, there were only about three people working on uh, online then, said, I just can't see it. He said, I just can't see that people will ever want to get news off their screen. So that's how, how wildly clueless we all were. So it was just as simplistic as, as people will always want inky fingers from reading a paper? I think so. I mean, I must admit, I, I had the same feeling around about 2007 when the iPhone came out and people said, oh, you know, that people are going to read very long articles on the iPhone. I just thought that was ridiculous. How, how could you read anything on a tiny screen like that? And, uh, you know, that was one of the many instances in the book when I was wrong. Let's talk about the sort of positives and negatives here. So, so Alan, let's start with you. Y your book basically 
although it says this revolution is incredibly disruptive, it broadly welcomes what you might call the decline of the gatekeepers. Is that right? The fact that news was, if you like, a sort of almost a monopoly you're done by people who produced newspapers i think i had planned a book that would sort of defend journalism and say look in a world of information chaos we need journalism more than ever i found i couldn't write that book partly because i was writing the book during the course of brexit which in which it seemed to me a lot of british newspapers were not doing what what newspapers should do but also because of things like climate change and blah 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 so I think there is undoubtedly a role for gatekeepers in the traditional sense, but but they have to be better gatekeepers than they are at the moment. And we need a sort of fundamental discussion about what journalism is trying to do and what public interest it thinks it's serving. Emily, give us your sense about this. It's a bit like saying, do we approve of fire or not? I mean, it's it sort of happened, you know, but, but, but give us the balance sheet. Well, yeah, I have to say that as an eternal pessimist, I'm actually quite cheerful at the moment, because if you've been a pessimist about this stuff for the past, um, you know, five to ten years, all the slightly doomy things you thought are coming true, but like much in in a much more kind of real and unpleasant fashion than you thought. Um, so I think that there is something in certainly sort of if you think about what's happened since 2016 and all the things we know now about the information ecosystem, which actually some of us had been talking about for a while, but which I think people just thought, well, it's not that important or, you know, it won't cause any harm. You know, thanks to Donald Trump. Uh, so thank you, Donald Trump. We're having a really sort of wide-ranging conversation about all of the various things that are wrong with our information ecosystem, including how do we build a proper and sustainable future for journalism. Somebody I know who's a, a, a Silicon Valley executive used to kind of slightly annoy me by asking me every so often, Emily, just remind me again, why will we need journalists in the future? Mm. People have stopped asking that question. And there are lots of organisations around now that were not around 10 years ago. I'm thinking about ProPublica, particularly in the States, and new types of reporting organisation like Vox and BuzzFeed and what have you, that have added, you know, a richness um, and are connected to sort of slightly different audiences that we wouldn't have had before. But I'm not massively optimistic about the future of capitalism lashed to an American model of free speech. So if you want to be optimistic about something, I would say be optimistic about the fact that I think we are about to have, and I hope I'm right about this malpronouncement, a real revival in civic media and how we think about it and how we build it for the future, probably not unlike the phase we went through after the Second World War. And how is that going to happen? Because you've, you've said in things that you've written, the market on its own can't do it, or words to that effect. You, you say we're going to see a revival of civic media, you think. What does that look like and how does it happen? Well, first of all, it looks like a pretty significant transfer of wealth, probably from the platform companies and the, and the technology companies. And taxation and even sort of public media expenditure. You know, we have a lot of institutions that haven't been rethought. The piece of this which is missing, so I think, you know, I'm not on my own in thinking that, that we have to now have a part of the market which is sustainable. Um, I think people are more willing to pay for it than they were before if, as Alan quite rightly says, 
journalism is better. You know, we need the political will and we need some regulation and we need cross-subsidy creating in the market. Would that mean sort of Google and so on subsidising news? Because that's what you've talked about, subsidising other people's news. Well, I do think that, you know, they have defunded the advertising market and it's not coming back. And you see that particularly starkly, for instance, in local journalism, which I think is an identifiable problem that people have now started to address. In America, I mean, it's it's interesting because over over in the States, we don't really have the BBC or anything like it, even though there is um, some sort of public media. But we have seen moves towards uh, new types of organisation and people getting together to say, can we actually figure out a long-term funding solution for particular types of journalism, accountability reporting, that actually just didn't exist before. And you have philanthropic organisations, you have billionaires, you have policy people all talking about that pretty intensely at the moment, which again, if we can actually translate that into cash and structures that can catch the cash and employ the reporters, then I think that that might be a really fantastic opportunity, the like of which I, you know, we, we, we haven't really seen for 40 or 50 years. Alan, Emily mentions the decline in advertising revenue, which was obviously the, the sort of big financial hole that was created during your tenure through Facebook and all of that. Journalism is important. You both think that, you know, journalism that is not free, but, you know, costs money to to produce. Where are the solutions, do you think? Well, I I think it's possible that this 200-year accident of history that glued advertising to news, which is, in in a sense, it's a random thing, they're, they're two different things, as Emily says, may be coming apart. And um, people are trying all kinds of creative things uh, in terms of finding commercial models. And some will undoubtedly succeed. If you're the FT or the Wall Street Journal and you're selling in financial information, you're probably going to be all right. But there are local papers that have already gone, and I suspect many of them more will be going. So if we're saying to society, look, we've, we've got a glimpse of how frightening it is to live in a society when we don't know what's true or not and and recent polls seem to think that about half of us are struggling now to, to tell the difference between what's true or not so supposing that's a need that society has and let's say that journalists can make the argument that they are well equipped to to uh, do at least some of that then i think journalism is going to have to come forward and and, and make the case for why they're the best people to do this um, i mean i had a bit of a twitter rant earlier this week when I woke up in the middle of the night listening to the IPCC report on climate change, which yeah. was really, really frightening uh, and urgent. And the BBC World Service was running it. Uh, and the next morning's British press, the, the Guardian, the Independent, the I had it on the front pages. But most of the British papers were leading on the Strictly Snog. That is more important to the future of humanity. Well, so <laughs> you, you think it, it's really editors admitting that we, our business model is not journalism in the public interest. We have to entertain people. Um, if we put climate change on the front page, yeah. we just wouldn't sell the copies. So, I, I mean, I, I get their problem. But in which case, if we think we do need journalism in the public interest, then we have to start thinking, well, how, how do we sustain something the market won't sustain? And you, as editor, took the view, which the, your, your successor, Kath Viner, has also taken the view of, that what you call in the open versus closed. In other words, do you put a paywall up or not? You were for open. Anyone can access the Guardian. They've got, it's got a membership scheme which began under you and, has, and continued under Kath Viner. But 
that is quite quite important part of your philosophy, yes? So the, the, in the first chapter, I, I talk about a really horrendous allegation of a, of, of a brutal rape that was going around in Sweden. It turned out that the details of this were quite untrue, but they were circulating through around millions of people in Sweden. And the people blaming who were circulating immigrant, it, blaming Muslims, it was, the, the story essentially was you let Muslims into our country and this is what they do to our women. The sort of neo-Nazis who were tweeting this were saying mainstream media are quiet about this. This was also untrue. Mainstream media had written about it, but when you followed the links, you hit a paywall. So what was happening in Sweden was that the good information was living in a little gated community for a, a tiny minority of the Swedish population. And they had left the playing field open for anybody to put any kind of lies. And we've just seen what's happened in the Swedish election with, with the far right getting more prominence than they've had probably since the Second World War. It seems to me if, if you can pull off the trick, which the Guardian is trying to do, of saying people will voluntarily give, and 800,000 people seem to be doing this, to say, well, I want to sustain Guardian journalism not just so that I can read it, but that so everybody can read it, so that, so that there's a form of the truth that is out there. Uh, again, I have to credit Emily with the original vision of this, and it seems to me more important now than ever. Now, Emily, part of this, and this is about reasons to be realistic rather than cheerful, part of the sort of underlying truth that's going on here is fake news i know the term is sort of become abused by donald trump but you know whether it's mythologies about hillary clinton running a sex ring from a pizza parlor or you know some of the stuff that trump comes out with or fox news uh, and and you know the the reinforcing social media bubbles we all know the issues what do we do about that? Oh, the small, easy questions. <laughs> so the first thing I think to say is that we, we really don't understand nearly enough about the role that large platforms and algorithmically targeted information are playing. And everything that we do know, we know because independent researchers like my brilliant research director, Jonathan Albright, who's been all over the papers here for, for doing work on Russian propaganda spread, and investigative journalists like Carol Cadwallader at uh, The Observer and, and The Guardian and uh, Craig Silverman at, at BuzzFeed. We know what we know because we've been reporting and researching it in incredibly difficult circumstances because none of these platforms want to actually give up information about this. And I think, you know, I'm in Finland at the moment. We've been talking about this all day with the um, press councils of Europe about what, what, what do you do? And I think yeah, it's, it's fair to say that how do we get over it? Well, first of all, we've always had fake news and there are certain circumstances in which fake news gains much more traction and that's when we have economic instability and you have deep division in society. Uh, there are certain people like Dan Kreese, who's a very good political scientist at um, UNC in the States, who says we talk about fake news because it's an easy problem as opposed to racism, which is actually the real problem that's dividing you know, I feel very ambivalent about the enormous amount of work which is going into things like fact-checking initiatives and debunking fake news. I think it's all good. And I think as reporters, we need to understand and learn much more about how to interrogate the systems that d deliver that. And, and places like mine, you know, sort of Columbia Journalism School and journalism schools everywhere need to be teaching those kinds of skills. But ultimately, we have to you know, say, what kind of society do we want? I mean, this is exactly Alan's point about what kind of journalism do we want? And then we have to include, you know, some of the, the most culpable members of that, which are the big 
technology companies. They are, you know, the press in each country in that conversation and try and figure out mechanisms for actually kind of doing our bit of it, which is prioritising the right stories, funding journalism properly, making sure that the platforms that we have are designed both for information as well as entertainment and deliver that part of it. The rest of it, I think, you know, we, we have to say this is not just something that you can solve with journalism alone. I mean, Alan, fake, I sort of feel I should ask you about fake news too. Yes, I, I think that there's, there's a problem of scale that is partly one of the stories of this book because The Guardian was really quite a small paper, um, I think the eighth or ninth biggest in Britain. And uh, one of the reasons we didn't put up a paywall to begin with is that the metrics then were that you expected to lose 97% of your readership if you if you tried to charge them. Uh, and we would have been left, you know, about half the size of the New Statesman. Um, nothing wrong with no the offense statesman. to the new statesman <laughs> and then we discovered that you know two-thirds of our readers were living abroad and and we've i think the guardian is now huge I, I don't know what the metrics are now but i think it's something like 160 million people a month come to the guardian Amazing. around the world but that's still tiny compared with with the, the two billion that are on facebook so the scale of all this is is one of the problems, and fake news is being generated, or false news, or misleading news at such a, a prodigious rate that to expect journalists to catch up with it, uh, and even if they could, that would be the only thing that they would ever do. They would never have to, the chance, which is partly what the platforms are themselves are grappling with when people are saying, you know, you are responsible for the stuff that you're carrying. How on earth are they supposed to do that? How is how is Facebook supposed to capture the, the, the billions of pieces uh, of information that travel across it every day? So is it a problem without a solution? Well, I think I think it's just we're terribly early into all this, right? And people are jumping up and down. You know, when I see Mark Zuckerberg give evidence, uh, he looks like a frightened man to me. He he started something and he's a bit gobsmacked by what he started and the consequences of it. And it's going to need a lot of clever people to try and work out what the solutions look like. And some of them may be algorithmic, but but some of them won't be. So one aspect of this, which I feel we should cover, is that, you know, the British press has some great elements to it. It's also had some flaws, to put it mildly, some of which you exposed, like phone hacking. But it's also traditionally been, relatively speaking, to the right rather than the left. Now, I think it's striking in the 2017 election, general election here, when people tell that story, part of the story they tell is about Jeremy Corbyn and people around him finding ways around that with new platforms and, and, and new institutions. How much of that is true? How much do you think this era changes the dynamic of the British press? And how much does it is it going to stay the same, do you think? I think it really does. I said earlier that it, I was writing this book during the course of Brexit. And I think most reasonable people would now say, two years on, that Brexit is an immensely complicated question and that there are very serious arguments on both sides. But that's not how the British press told the story at the time. The overwhelming majority of the British press said this is a really simple decision. We're not even going to body with the arguments for the other side because we know what you should do. And I'm afraid I, at that point, I just started using Twitter because I found voices on Twitter who were genuinely knowledgeable, in my view. And I just found that a much more useful and reliable way of understanding the problem. Now, the, the difficulty is that if, if more and more people begin to believe that about newspapers, which I think they are, and, and you know the surveys of trust, which have never been great for newspapers, are now rock bottom, then it's not just the 
right-wing newspapers. It, it, it's going to be newspapers in general that are going to feel the backlash. So we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which sees me appointed as some kind of benign leader. Some kind of. <laughs> if, if, if I were to appoint you media secretary, uh, day one, what is the first thing you would do? I'd create a fund for journalism and I would tax the socks off Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, etc. Alan? Broadly the same, but um, I've, I think I've spoken to similar people to Emily and these companies, and they say, well, OK, tax us to pay for journalism. What does this journalism look like? Does it look like the Daily Mail? Does it look like the Sun? Does it look like the Strictly Snog? What, what are we... Um, you know, we're up for that conversation, but what is it that we're supposed to be supporting? And that's a conversation that's not happening at the moment. I'm afraid the answer is terribly worthy. It's going to be if you live in a town that's losing its local newspaper. I mean, there are towns now where if a reporter turns up to cover the town council, they get ejected. They, they say, what, what the hell's a reporter doing here? People are getting unused to the, the, the idea that, that, um, of that watchdog uh, function. So if, if you've got nobody in the courts, nobody looking at the police, nobody looking at the water board, nobody looking at the health authority, nobody looking at the, the corrupt planning deals, uh, we have to convince people that's a really bad society that we're creating. But n n none of that is strictly snog. I mean, a lot of that is quite, <laughs> you know, it requires us as citizens to step up and read boring stuff. And, and also there's presumably a question here, which is if it's taxed, one of the fears that people had about media regulation was the allegation that it was government heavy-handedness. Who decides what to fund and who not to fund? Yeah, well, I mean, the BBC is one model. BBC is a form of taxation, uh, and it has a form of regulation. And they say, we expect you to provide this kind of content, and we'll have a regulation panel above it. ITV does the same. Channel 4 News does the same. So uh, there are models of how you would do it. Um, I was in Sweden last week where the, the Swedish government thinks it's a bad idea just to have one newspaper in a particular community. So the weaker newspaper gets a state subsidy. And I was having dinner. That's so that's why we love Sweden, that's isn't why we it, love Jeff? <laughs> yeah, reasons to be Swedish. Reasons to be Swedish. And I had dinner with the editor of a strong newspaper and a senior executive on the weaker newspaper. And the, the strong editor said, well, of course, I hate it. But I have to admit, I think it's good for democracy because it would be bad if I was the only newspaper in town. I think Alan is right, which says, well, what does this journalism look like? The first thing is just to pay some reporters or entrepreneurial reporters to think about what that looks like. One of my former students came by my office a few months back and he's been reporting in Alaska. And he said, you know, I've got this great idea for a, for a newswire from state houses, but, you know, I need to think about how it would be funded and, and who would help us edit it. And I know lots of other young reporters who would do this. I think there are lots of really energetic, mission-driven young journalists out there, but they don't have the resources. And I don't see them getting the resources from the existing institutions. So I think that, you know, it won't necessarily be the tractor that pulls us out the mud, but I do think it will give us some momentum and, and give us some time to figure it out. Because again, Alan was right. You know, we are really, really early into what is going to be a generational journey on this i mean some of this is happening already by the way i mean it's a little notice initiative they, they, they top slice the bbc license fee and i think the, the sum is 150 million emily may be able to correct me yeah i think that's right yeah has gone into public interest local reporting 
I mean, some people complain that's now just been gobbled up by sort of giant companies like Trinity Mirror uh, to subsidise mm-hmm. it. But nevertheless, it, it shows that it can be done. If you say, well, look, there is a need for court reporting. Here's £150 million. Go and sit in some courts and do the reporting. Um, it's, it's not terribly complicated. I think that's absolutely right. And there are actually brilliant initiatives like Bureau Local and there's um, the Bristol sort of collective around um, CityWire or whatever it's called. Um, and in America, you've got these, again, there's um, outlier media in Chicago that have been experimenting with things like SMS texting to connect local communities in really disadvantaged and poor places that have no connection with mainstream media and feel extremely sort of disillusioned by it just by texting them a, a sort of basic facts about their housing and things that they really need to know and I do think that you know this isn't insoluble I like to say to my students this is not my problem this is your problem and it's actually a pretty exciting one to get your teeth into but we can't tell them to do that and then you know have no health care have no housing we do we do actually need to pay them Uh, alan and emily thank you so much for joining us so we're going to hear now from a couple of people working on ideas to to change all this for the future and i'm delighted to be joined now by somebody emily mentioned earlier bureau local megan nacero hello hello thanks for having me can i ask you what is bureau local so the bureau local is a collaborative investigative newsroom that operates here in the uk We've been very much inspired by the collaborative reporting of, say, the Panama Papers from the ICAJ and other collaborative projects, but we hadn't seen anyone try to take it to a single country. So we're trying to help solve gaps in reporting and important storytelling in the UK by collaborating with local reporters and citizens around the various countries to tell stories that really matter to communities. And, and can we talk about why local media is important? Because, I mean, you can kind of have this view of it all being dog shows and county fairs, uh, <laughs> but there's sort of more to it than that, especially when holding um, sort of local uh, government and authorities to account. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, those dog shows are very exciting to watch and a very important part of it <laughs> in telling this, that community story. But I think you raise a really important point, which is the accountability level. I think um, in the UK, and a lot of people would probably agree to that, is most power is held centrally in London. And when you don't have that accountability that's happening out in the regions or on a local level, that can have a huge effect on people's lives. So whether that's holding your councillor to account, whether that's finding out where your council tax is actually going, um, or you know whether the local park is going to be shut down, there's really important elements that affect people's lives. And, and as you probably know on kind of the gloomier end of the spectrum, there's been a real travesty and a real crisis in local news as we've been seeing local newspapers shutting down and we've been seeing the models of journalism that currently exist um, are really struggling at a local level. So our aim of the project is really to try to address those, but to kind of take hope in the kind of power of, of collaboration and accountability through that. And can you give us some examples of how those collaborations have made an impact so far? Sure. So this week we did a really big investigation where we released a year's worth of counting homeless deaths. Maybe sometime last year in the winter, you might have remembered there was a story about a man who had sat on the steps of Parliament um, and he passed, you know, MPs passing him every day. And one day he died and he died sitting there on those steps. And sort of the irony wasn't lost on many to see how 
what a travesty that was. And we started asking the question, well, how many homeless people are there and, and how many homeless people are dying? And when we went to find out that information, we realized that no one counted. There was no official statistics or data or anything collected on this. So we decided to sort of change that. Um, so we reached out to people across the country that was local reporters, local doctors, local people. Um, and obviously a huge part of that is kind of the local charities or or um, activists who work in that space. And over the course um, of nine months, we've been collecting data where a, you know a local shelter might have recorded some information or it might have been a family member who could tell us about someone who died or a local reporter who could tell us they knew about, you know, three or four homeless people that had died in their area. And so we set to count out for a year's time. Um, and we revealed just this week that there were 449 people who died over 12 months who were homeless. Um, and this really could only be done by working with people around the country to record that. Like I said, no one records these statistics. Um, and we're really pleased to say that now the Office for National Statistics is going to be producing their first um, estimates of, of these figures as a result of that. Um, and I think it's just a real testament to the power of people and the power that can happen both by really valuing journalism and what journalism can be, but also recognizing that journalism can step outside itself and try new and different ways of telling these stories. Finally, often with the podcast, we get people telling us that they think the ideas are fantastic, but they, they want to do things themselves. Is, is there anything people can do to support uh, an initiative like Bureau Local? We've had people want to set up Bureau Local models in their own towns. Um, the model has been taken to Germany. So now there's a kind of um, a Bureau Local model happening in Germany on a country level. But we've also heard of people in Sheffield and Oxford who say they want to replicate that idea in their own on a smaller scale, but in their own cities. And so they're creating meetups and they're pulling, pulling people together. And it's simply just about creating a space to share skills, knowledge, and expertise. And that can happen um, with a handful of people. Megan Lucero from Bureau Local. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We're joined now by author Dan Hind, who is writing about the reform of the media and the, the, the changes we need to make in the future. Uh, thanks for joining us, Dan. No, it's my great pleasure. So so you have a plan. Can you talk us through the sort of headline points of the plan, uh, for the, the way that we need to adapt to the way we think about and regulate the media in the future? The idea is you start from a fairly straightforward principle, which is that if public subsidies are to be spent on supporting journalism, the public should be an active and knowledgeable participant in decisions about how that subsidy is spent. So underlying that is a principle of civic communicative equality, by which I mean that as citizens, we should all be able to dispose of some power to shape both the production of public speech, as, in, as it were, what gets, what gets investigated, um, what gets pursued um, and discussed, and also the dissemination of public speech. So we need to have oversight over the dominant platforms or dominant media in which public business is discussed. So th so that's something that I've been arguing for for quite a while. As I say, it has two dimensions. It, it, there's, an, there's an element which looks at how we produce public speech, and there's an element which looks at to tries to think about how we share, share public business, how we discuss public issues, how we deliberate. So how, how is it different to the BBC as a model? The model that I propose would be one where we all contribute 
uh, either through taxation or through some sort of licensing arrangement or some other form of revenue raising. We all contribute to public funds that are, that are used to, to, to subsidise journalism, but we would do so in a context where we would also have an equal degree of voice in deciding how those funds might be spent. Would that be like electing a board of the BBC? I mean, it's, it's sort of like a bit like the old-fashioned public ownership, which is what we have now, versus a more like a mutual or a cooperative. Is that basically, is that sort of right? So there's two, there's two elements. I think you do need to democratise governance, and there are two key ways of doing that. You can have elections for, for um, uh, key of, officers, and also, Chris, I think, and you've talked about this before, I think it's important to introduce sortition, introduce jury panels into the governance of the BBC so that representative cross-sections of the public are involved in um, discussions about what the BBC is doing, which are informed and which can be conducted over quite long periods of time so that the public, as a, as a public, starts to get some expertise um, in issues around um, the priorities that the BBC might have. But crucially, there needs to be an individuated power that each citizen can dispose of to fund journalism. In simple terms, that means that we need to move to a model where all of us, because we are citizens, are able to direct some funding towards media operations or media projects um, in the singular or plural that we think are worthwhile. So I could vote to fund like the Daily Mail, like my small amount Absolutely. of, my a- small amount of Absolutely. tax money or whatever it is that, that would be allocated by me so, so it's each individual citizen gets what a, a decide to checklist or something of different media outlets how, how would it work well i mean i my preference would be to have a um as open and liberal system as possible so people could direct funds towards media operations um as they saw fit um those media operations would have to submit to um some degree of, of regulation as, as agreed in advance. Um, they would they'd obviously be subject to the normal rules concerning um, incitement and so on. But as I say, there would be as, as much freedom as, as we could, could bear, really, in the, in the dispersal of these funds. And it would mean exactly as you say that the right would have an opportunity to pitch for these funds. Um, but crucially, it would mean that bodies of opinion, which at the moment struggle to be heard in the mainstream, would be able to secure much more reliable sources of funding. And as I say, if we thought about democratising the media institutions within which these, 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 this media product was discussed and was treated and reached wider audiences, not only would you be able to fund media operations which now struggle, um, but you would also be able to raise the salience of issues which currently are kept very, very well um, obscured in the media system. And, and how would you get people to engage in this? Because typically pe- people are very sort of hands off. They, you know, they want to lean, lean back and just consume this stuff. How, how do you envisage public engagement in this happening? Well, I think there's two things to say. I mean, firstly, we like to say that education empowers, but the reality is that power educates. The, the possession of this power will become an inducement for people to engage with it more actively. And, and I'm not going to, claim that we're suddenly going to become civic saints overnight and we're going to spend all our time poring over which media um, operations to support and poring over the, the results of their work. But what I think is the case is that we do have a minority population who are engaged and, and are thinking quite quite seriously about uh, the issues facing the country. 
And we've got this thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy. Let, let's say that um, where, where Jeff is a sort of benign-ish uh, ruler, let's say he made you the minister for media. What would you do on day one? I'd probably resign. But, um... <laughs> After having sort of thought about resigning and Jeff having persuaded you that you shouldn't. Well, right. Having had the having had the revolver and the bottle of whiskey grabbed out yeah. of my my my, hand, my <laughs> shivering hands. I mean, I think the first thing I would want to do is uh, convene a, a really a series of grand juries uh, around the country, where we could get like representative cross sections of the public into rooms, give them the secretarial support they need, give them access to expert witnesses and give them a chance to talk about the media system that they currently have and give, frankly, give, you know, advocates for for democratic media reform like myself an opportunity to talk to people um, and allow other other advocates for other, other models to make their case and start to have an open conversation about the media system because at the moment it is completely dominated by an editorial class and a sort of, you know, a background array of plutocratic characters who don't want a conversation about the media. And just on this point about ownership, you know, one of the questions we asked Alan and uh, Emily was about how much the power of the big newspaper proprietors, Murdoch's, uh, the Murdoch's, Rothermere's and so on, has been diminished by um, the, the digital era. What is your view about that and how important these ownership questions remain? I think it's easy to get, is to become excessively optimistic about um, the impact of social media. It's certainly true that social media has given people a taste of participation. It's given people a sense that they can make some inroads into public conversation. Uh, and, and the consequences of that have been often non, non-trivial. I think, I think it has made an important uh, impact. But at the same time, we don't own these platforms. We don't control them. Um, they aren't our friends. They're not interested in promoting um, reason public debate. They're not interested in democratizing speech in any serious way. Um, and plus, in terms of the old-style media moguls, they dispose of enormous amounts of power in, in terms of their ability to spend money. Um, and that plays out as a privileged position in the, in the digital, uh, the emerging digital media regime. So, uh, yeah, people like Murdoch still matter, um, people like Google and uh, Facebook that matter uh, perhaps even more. We can't suck ourselves into thinking that we can rely on them. Okay. Dan Hine, thank you so much for joining us. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Well, there's lots to chew on there, to put it mildly. What, what did you think? You know, I think the point that Alan and Emily made that in some ways we're in a much better situation than we were 20 or 30 years ago where just a bunch of press barons decide who's going to be represented and the way in which they're going to be represented that that era has has gone so there's a big positive there right yeah i think there is a big positive there and you know i think it's easy to get sort of consumed by the fake news and all that which is worrying and Mm. but to ignore the fact that there is a sort of democratizing nature of it now you know it's a bit like we're living through the revolution and so, you know, I, the thing I felt overwhelmingly was we, we, we had four people who were trying to engage with the revolution, but it's, it's obviously incredibly hard, isn't it? 
Yeah. And, you know, when you're in the middle of something, it's very difficult to have that kind of bird's eye view and or even a sense of the direction of travel in a way. What I take out of it is we're going to have to find a way of subsidizing good quality journalism. It's either going to have to come from the media technology giants or the public. It's got to have a local element to it. Because I think it really matters. And, you know, local news does really matter, I think. Um, and, you know, mm. towns losing their newspapers or cities losing their newspapers, is just, it's just bad. I think some of the Dan stuff might seem quite difficult to implement. But I think if you're going to subsidize it, you've got to find some way in which you engage the public in what you subsidize and what they actually want to see. Yeah, I don't like to be one of those, it's a nice idea, but people. But uh, that being said, I'm about to be. I really wonder about how easy it would be to get the public engaged in that kind of thing. If you have a hard enough job in even getting people to get out and vote, how much interest really would would people have in getting into the technicalities of how media is funded? Let's be optimistic. And I think Megan Lucero, you know, we covered homelessness on this podcast. And remember, we talked about the homelessness deaths and was this being kept track of? I think she's showing what can be done. Oh, yeah, she was wonderful. That, that was very exciting to hear about that stuff. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. If you've got thoughts on the future of journalism and media and, and reaction to what you've heard on the podcast, please do uh, get in touch with us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast, likewise on Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Promise you your email will be read, absorbed, listened to and all of that jazz. Uh, right. Uh, we've got Nicholas Carey, who's emailed in. Hello, Cheerful Podcast. Just a note to say thank you. Up until your podcast entered my life, that's quite a strong thing to say, a few months ago, I felt entirely helpless with what was happening to our world. With things like Brexit and climate change and mass poverty, I would just bury my head in the sand and try to ignore what was going on because I like to find answers and I simply couldn't. But listening to the Cheerful Podcast has changed my approach entirely and helped me accept that one human mind simply isn't made for problems that large. 
Better still, solutions and solace can be found in collaboration and learning. I love this guy. I just love the way the podcast turns subjects that I would have previously considered fairly unapproachable into intriguing, salient ideas with real-world examples, informed guests and evidence that we really can make a difference. And I felt compelled to say thank you for bringing my back my faith in the world and our future in it. Keep up the amazing work. Kind regards, Nick Carey. Wow. Is that too humble brag? <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. I mean, what a, what a lovely email to receive. Non-humble brag. But yeah, there's no humility there. Is I there? think what's happened is that your mother-in-law, Lynn Barron, has like taken on a pseudonym. <laughs> In order to get read out on the program. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, this one comes from Keith Sinclair on the subject of our four-day week episode. Keith says, hello, read the Living for the Weekend episode, an interesting twist on the mantra more for less, by which public servants have been browbeaten and exploited for many decades. Your episodes make me feel optimistic for the future. Oh, that's great. Another nice one. I know Lorna Felker, uh, hi, Ed and Jeff, and I hope I've pronounced her name correctly, is F-I-E. L-K-E-R, in case I haven't. The phrase work-life balance was used a lot in this week's show. Sam Conniff Allende argues in Be More Pirate, and he was a bonus episode, that this emphasis on work before life is part of the problem. If you listen to a lot of the language we use in society, hardworking families, etc., it gives a clear message that we value work over leisure time. We need to do some work on the language you use to get a culture shift in our accepted working patterns. And that's Lorna from Southampton. I think she's got a good point. Yeah, I think so. I think those things can can make a difference, just reframing how we think about things. Yeah, I like that, Lorna. What should it be? Life-work balance? Yeah, I don't know. Life-play balance? Life-rest? Answers on a postcard, but I think she's got a good point. And this comes from Howard Raucus, who says, Dear Jeff and Ed, please come and join our park run up here in Fleetwood, Lancashire. I volunteer to help run it every week and also occasionally join the runners. We're quite a small one, uh, usually between 100 and 150 runners, and we run along the coast path. We would love you to join us. What do you think? I'd like to go to Fleetwood. I've not been since I was a kid. It's quite near Blackpool, so I could go and see the illuminations. I'd be more interested in a stroll than a run. Is, is a park stroll an option? I think you are allowed to stroll. I can see us in sort of branded merchandise. <laughs> We could do it. We could sort of sponsor yeah. it for a kind of good cause. Yeah. God, I, I feel. I fear I'm talking us into this. If if we can stroll, does that mean we could potentially amble? Yeah, I think I think an amble is allowed. Okay, well, I'm up for a park amble. I don't. I don't think we should make a promise. Can I just say from the bitter experience when you know politicians or not politicians make promises? I think I think we should say we'll sort of take it under advisement. Definitely. We're going to go and have a raucous time with Howard. If you can hear some yeah. noises in the background, it's my children, by the way. Hi. They heard she had a question about the four-day week. I was talking to them about this last week, and they said, well, does that mean we get four days of school? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Has, has there been any thinking on that? Well, I sent Kate Bell, who was on the show a late-night email, <laughs> to ask her about <laughs> it. Uh, it wasn't quite a late-night email. It was a text. Uh, she said it was a good point. They thought that maybe you could have the teaching assistant teaching one day. That was my children's view. Right. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, I think we're in the outro. Um, Let's thank our glorious guests, Alan Rusbridger, Emily Bell, Megan Lucero and Dan Hind. And Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Uh, the idents were made by James Deacon. The music was composed by Ed Seed. And the artwork, Ed, was Emily made by... Power! Emily Power. Hold power to account. Please tell me you're going to be back next week. I will be back next week, and I'll bring you something nice. 
I say Good. that, I mean, maybe a little carton of UHT milk from a hotel room. Ah, oh, A towel. It's the thought It's the thought <laughs> that counts. He's been sleepless in Salford. He's been lovelorn in his living room. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.